recording. Hello, hello everybody. Welcome. Welcome everyone. Welcome Rabbanit Halevi. It's an honor to have you again with us for, for part two of this series on how our Achachamim have addressed contemporary social uh, issues. Uh, I wasn't able to attend the, the live stream last week, but I, I did watch the recording and it was really enjoyable um, and informative and thorough. I'm sure everyone would agree. And really beautiful going through the, the, the story of the Givonim and, and the Teshuvah of Bichayim David HaLevi. Um, a really powerful call to, to sort of real social justice. <laughs> um, and I think tonight we'll be going through the class where, uh, or, or writings of Rav Kapach. Um, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, I think there's not much more to introduce. I'm sure if, uh, we all watched last week's either live or, or the recording. Um, and we're very much looking forward to, to this class. Uh, Rabbanit, uh, all yours. Feel free to start when you want. Um, and then we'll take questions at the end or, or however you prefer, like last week, I guess. Okay, Th- thank you so much, Ali. And let me just... Right. Firstly, thank you, Avi. Thank you, Sina. Thank you again to the Chabura. Like you said, everything that was said, needed to be said was said last week, but the thank yous are always in place. Uh, I again want to give a special shout out to Rav Yonatan Halevi, who um, helped me put together the source sheet as far as the formatting and making sure that everything's on the right page, things match up. So I want to give you a shout out again. Um, and it's really good to see some new faces, definitely some old. So I'm really excited to be learning again together. Last week, we focused on what we call macro, which is really big. Okay. Uh, we took social welfare and talked about, well, whose responsibility is it? Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it combined? Uh, is it the government? Um, it was a really big picture. What I want us to do today is focus it. We're going to go into a very specific issue, a very specific category. And very quickly realized that our Chachamim have things to say, not just about big issues, blatant issues, but also the very small details, the very unique populations that exist within much larger picture. Um, it'll be a little bit of a comparative analysis. I hope that anything I say or do is not offensive as much as bringing the facts and then letting you make educated decisions. So if you look at the top of the page, uh, today's topic is youth at risk a balanced solution to a common problem. In the writings of Rabbi Yosef Kafif or Kapach, I'm going to use the word Kapach, though I know that academically and probably uh, more correctly it would be Kafif, um, about youth So let's start with from the beginning. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with Eric Erickson? Awesome. Okay, so let's start. Um, Eric Erickson is a theorist. Uh, a primary theorist in psychology and then obviously mental health and social work, he, a little bit of his history. So Eric Erickson was born to a Danish Jewish mom who, while her husband was away, conceived the child with a non-Jewish Danish dad. Uh, eventually she gets divorced. They moved out to Germany. And in Germany, Eric, as a young kid, gets very, very sick. So at three years old, he's treated by a doctor. The doctor's name is Dr. Hamburger. Um, Dr. Hamburger is Jewish. And his mother eventually marries Dr. Hamburger. Eric takes on the last name. So he's known as Eric Hamburger. And it's only much later on in life does he figure out that he's not quite a hamburger, nor is he a solemn Solomonson. Um, he grows up in a very turbulent time, okay? 
think about at age 13, World War I is taking place. His family eventually makes it to Vienna, ultimately World War II, and he ends up in the United States. Um, he always says that he struggled tremendously with his identity. When he would go to temple, right, his family would come to the temple, they would pray, and everybody would always make fun of him because he was tall, blonde, blue-eyed. They'd say, you look so Nordic. And then he would go to regular school during the week and say, oh my gosh, you look so Jewish. And in Hebrew, we say, right? He didn't fit in anywhere. I think this is eventually what inspires his actual work, his writings on identity, on figuring out who you are. Um, he is an artist. He's somebody who does not excel at school at all. He doesn't fit into the narrow box and ultimately drops out. Uh, later on in his life, in his 20s, he's called to a nice retreat at a Rosenfeld Center. Uh, if you haven't picked up on, it's also a Jewish center. And he was there to take care of the children while the parents were going through psychoanalysis by Anna Freud. So the daughter of Sigmund Freud. Anna Freud was observing him with the kids. And one day, two days, he's patient. He's teaching them. And she approached him and says, you're in the wrong field. You need to go into the field of human behavior and take care of children. And that's really when he takes a turn. He ends up signing up for the Academy of Freudian Psychology, though he doesn't agree with everything that Freud says, or I should say necessarily doesn't agree. Uh, he ends up becoming a very big theorist. So here you have this theory on what we call psychosocial development, how human behavior develops based on their life cycle. Um, if you look at the graph for a minute, you'll see it's divided up into originally eight, um, eight different stages of life, where his whole theory is, at every stage, there's an identity crisis. There's something that needs to take place so that either the individual will progress to stage two successfully or they're going to stay stuck. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a game, I think they're called Jenga blocks or Jenja blocks. I think it's Jenga blocks where you have to build, right? It's a bunch of nice little squares, blocks, but you got to build them straight. And if the foundation isn't straight, very likely you're not going to get very far. So I want to look at, for example, uh, if you look at the top left of the graph uh, picture, it says infancy. So infancy is age zero to 18 months. At this age, what the child's crisis is, am I going to learn to trust people or am I very quickly going to learn to mistrust human beings? Now, obviously, at this stage, uh, it's imperative on the caretakers to respond when the child cries, when the child has needs. If the children, the infant, feels that they are being heard, that they are being taken care of, they're being protected, they will successfully learn to trust people. Unfortunately, there are many people who are in their 70s are still dealing with trust issues because they haven't been taken care of, right? So these are building blocks. It's interesting, at the end of Eric's life, he ends up moving to Boston and he became the first psychoanalyst there. Um, he changed his last name. So from hamburger, Eric, Eric, Eric became Eric Erickson. Uh, ultimately converts to Christianity and is buried in a Christian cemetery. Uh, his daughter said that for him, his inner turmoil of identity was finally settled once he changed his last name and really took on a new identity. Uh, if you look at, move across the diagram, if you have it in color, it'll be the light blue. If you don't, it just says adolescence. So adolescence is the age that we would normally say between 12 and 18. And the struggle at this age is identity versus role confusion. How many of you have ever met teenagers, right? I love you. I hate you. I'm so independent. You don't know me. Can I have your credit card? I'm moving out forever. Whoops, I came back five seconds later. There's a tremendous amount of confusion. Who am I in relation to my parents, right? Very often I'll have parents who come and say, I don't understand what happened. My 11-year-old was like a rock star. They listened to everything I said. They loved me. They were like our representative of the family. 
kids now 13, everything I say, they have to say the opposite. Everything I do is somehow wrong. They're somehow critical. Um, I believe it was Mark Twain who once said that when he was 17, he couldn't understand why God had given him the most stupid parents in the world. And then yet when he turned 19, he couldn't figure out how in just two years they had become so smart, right? This is a very normal stage of life where people are trying to figure out, well, who am I? And part of figuring out who am I is, I don't accept everything that you throw at me. Just because you've told me up until now, this is who I am, this is what I am, this is what I believe, said who? Now, this is actually a very healthy transition. And we hope that at the end, uh, we get to a place of identity, right? Hopefully, by the time the kid hits 18, they know who they are. They know what they want to do. They know what their careers look like. We have something interesting, which is in the 1960s, there are a couple of revolutions taking place socially. Uh, many of them are focused in the United States, but not only. We're, there are four basic revolutions that shift really the progress of development. And we have somebody by the name of Joseph Arnett, who is actually still alive today, um, who adds to this theory. He said, you know what? It used to be age 18. That's it. You graduated. You went to work. You got married. That doesn't happen. I don't know about you, but I know 40-year-olds who are still sitting in their parents' basement playing video games. I meet 50-year-olds who are like, you know, I'm not sure that I want to do this. You're halfway through. You're not sure you want to do this career. And Arnett says, no, we have to put another stage in between adolescence and young adulthood. And he calls it emerging adolescence. So emerging adolescence is, uh, we're kind of, there's no abrupt transition. It's a slow transition that goes way past the years 18, stretching into 29, 30, 31, where, well, people are starting to do things at a much earlier age. For example, 11, 10, 11, 12-year-olds in the United States are already having sex ed classes because they need it. Um, or they're having it because they're, heavily involved. Um, you also have the responsibility that normally came with adulthood is stretching further. So really on both ends, this middle chaotic years are stretching with, for example, you'll find people who are in their 20s, barely finishing their BA, master's, maybe PhD. Uh, people are getting married less. Uh, people are moving out less. People are settling into what we would consider normal adulthood much later on. So in essence, this transition of youth, when we talk about youth at risk, uh, very often will not be the stereotypical 15-year-old, 16-year-old. You may find 29-year-olds, 30-year-olds who are still experiencing the same struggles that we find in the youth. Now, I'm just share with you, so who's, who are we talking about when we talk about demographics? Who's part of this population? So we have about 1.2 billion individuals who are between ages 12 um, and 19 in the world, which makes it about 16%. And then we have the young adulthood category from 18 to 29, another 1.8 billion, which brings us to about 32% of the population. So when we're having a conversation about at-risk individuals, we're really talking about a significant chunk of the world, 32%. We're talking about almost 3 billion individuals who fit into this category. Now, I want to share with you a minute. Okay, so what about the youth? What happens during this time period? What are we so concerned about? Um, so if you look at source number one, the World Health Organization, some fact sheets, it should actually say from June 8th, 2020, not July 8th, 2020. That is my error. I want to read you some key facts you don't have and then look at our sheet. So we have that youth violence is a global public health problem. It includes a range of acts from bullying and physical fighting to more severe sexual and physical assault to homicide, uh, which is murder, worldwide. 
listen to this number, worldwide, some 200,000 homicides occur among youth aged 10 to 29. So notice they've already extended the youth. Each year, which is 42% of total number of homicides globally each year. That means from all the categories of people who are being killed, we have a significant sum, 200,000, 42% from the youth. For each young person killed, many more sustain injuries requiring hospital treatment. In one study, from 3 to 24% of women report that their first sexual experience was forced. When it is not fatal, youth violence has a serious, often lifelong impact on a person's physical, psychological, and social functioning. So we're talking about very serious issues that come up during these years. Now, I want to talk to you about three different categories of what creates risk. So obviously, there's going to be individual, which is what a person is, their family, and then community. And then obviously, we're going to try to figure out, well, where can we make a difference? And sometimes it'll be in all three, and sometimes it'll be in one, but definitely not none. So if you look at source one, here are some risk factors within the individual group. So these are some things that if an individual has, it puts them at risk for being a youth at risk, a youth that will ultimately bump into violence. Uh, number one is ADHD, hyperactivity, conduct disorder, right? So we're talking about mental health issues that will ultimately create greater risk, right? The person who has an inability, uh, it's not that they don't know what's right. They have an inability to put it into action. I often tell my clients who struggle with ADHD, say, so, you know, it's like your brain has the engine of a Ferrari, but the brakes of a broken bicycle, right? You have at this stage a tremendous amount of impulse uh, that can lead to violence. Early involvement in alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. Low intelligence and educational achievement. Low commitment to school and school failure. This is where you find a tremendous amount of dropouts. So the five-year-olds who didn't want to go to school because they couldn't read or write and were not progressing like the other students, at age 15, you can't force them anymore. And this is where you have a huge rise in delinquency. If you'll recall last week, we talked about the five different areas that need to be targeted to change society, education being one of them, unemployment, involvement in crime, and exposure to violence in the family. Chances are if somebody grew up with violence, unfortunately, it makes them have a tendency to be more violent, to be involved in more violence. So that's individual factors. Risk factors within close relationships, so families, friends, intimate partners, and peers. Poor monitoring, monitoring and supervision of children by parents. Parents who are just not involved. If you recall, Erickson's first stage, which is infancy, uh, there's another theorist named Bowlby and Ainsworth, who've developed what's known as a theory of attachment, which is how parents or caregivers take care of infants will ultimately demonstrate what they turn out to be. So for example, you have secure attachments. Child cries, baby cries, parents respond effectively. Right? Child has needs, parents fill those needs. Child learns, I have dependable people, and they are attached securely. Unfortunately, very often you'll have parents who are absent, whether it's they, they, they themselves are struggling with mental health issues, with some kind of, um, I once read a horrible story, there was a woman in Texas who had gone to buy some drugs and had forgotten that she left her two children in the car. And only a day and a half later did she unfortunately find that her children were in the car locked in 100 degrees in the summer and they had passed, they had died, right? So very often you'll find that when the parents are incapable of, of taking care of the children, the attachment is unhealthy. 
Sometimes they know they could depend on the adult in their life, and sometimes the adult in their life is really not dependable. Unfortunately, you have worse. Sometimes the adult or the caregiver in their life is detrimental. They're the ones who are neglectful. They're the ones who are abusive. And often the child will learn to be avoidant. Now, this doesn't only play itself out with a three-month-old, but at youth, this is where you'll find a tremendous amount of violence and inability to connect normally with society. Harsh, lax, or inconsistent parental disciplinary practices. Again, the ambivalence of, I love you, I hate you, I don't know how to deal with you, I'm sometimes there. A low level of attachment between parents and children. Low parental involvement in children's activities. Parental substance abuse or criminality. I recently spoke to somebody who just got out of rehab. 38-year-old just got out of rehab uh, for alcohol addiction. And I said, you know, when did this start? And they said, when did it start? When I was born. I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, my grandfather was a drunk. My father was a drunk. We come from a family of drunks. He said, we have pictures of me as young as one years old drinking beer out of my grandpa's lap, right? We're talking about systemic issues that you know, problems don't go away. They just continue growing unless we actively take care of them. So parental depression, low family income, right? They are parents who are good working people who, unfortunately, we once lived behind a daycare. And the daycare opened at five o'clock in the morning and they closed at seven o'clock at night. And I remember in the winter months where the parents would come, it's pitch black, San Diego cold. It's not freezing, but it's cold. And they drop off the kids in their pajamas and I hear the babies crying. And they wouldn't come pick them up until seven o'clock where the kids are just about ready for bed again. And I'm not judging these parents. There are people who have to work overtime so that they can put bread on their table. But ultimately, there's a price that's paid in the development of the children. Unemployment in the family, associating with delinquent peers and or gang membership. It is very likely that the people you will be involved with, ultimately, and especially at this age, will influence the things you do. This youth age is a transitional stage. Parents go from being God to who are you? And friends become the new God. Trends become the new thing to follow. And very often, even the individuals who didn't necessarily start off wanting to do bad will get swept away with the crowd. The last one is risk factors within the community and wider society. So here you have access to and misuse of alcohol, right? Access to and misuse of firearms. Gangs are local supply of illicit drugs. High income inequality. I recently saw a mom who had unfortunately lost her son to overdose. And she had cheered that this was during the pandemic. So this happened out here in LA uh, just a couple of months ago. She said her 15-year-old son seemed absolutely fine. He was the most charming individual that they knew, never fought with the family, never. Turns out that on one of the social media avenues, um, there had been an entire group that was connected with outside drug dealers. And we're getting, during pandemic, during close down, when she could promise the child never left his premises, somehow he was getting hold of drugs that ultimately killed him. And she was talking to parents and saying, you have to be in touch with the realities of the world. The access that exists today is that much easier than, you know, everybody used to always be able to do bad things. That's the bottom line. Evil is not new. And it's always interesting when people attack the cell phones and the internet. And the, those are just devices that you can either do awesome things with or you can do awful things with. Those are choices. We happen to live in a world, though, that those choices are a lot easier today. You often don't need to leave the comfort of your own home to make really bad decisions. And then we have laws, obviously. Now, I, I'm not going to talk politics, but I know in the United States, laws are always a hot topic of, 
Should we have stricter control? Should we have less control? Is it the person who kills? Is it the gun that kills? Is it the axis? But ultimately, the laws of the society will very much dictate what happens during this youth period, right? What is the crackdown of when we do catch somebody selling drugs? What happens when somebody molests another human being? What happens to rapists? What happens to murderers, right? Based on what society does, it will either be act as a deterrent or allow for this to manifest. Now, I have you over here in Yiddish, there's an expression. They say, just like things happen in the non-Jewish world, things happen in the Jewish world, right? Which is accurate. Human problems will go across the board. It's just a matter of how we deal with them. And here I want to show you two very significantly different approaches of how youth at risk are dealt with in two very different communities. So if you turn to page two, this is research that's been published by the Idiot Afronot. I unfortunately cannot find the original article, though um, I have reached out to Dr. Shlomi, uh, who has written this, and I hope that once I get the original text from him, uh, I'll be able to send it out to you as a primary source. Uh, so this article was written by Sophia Hirschfeld, and it's paraphrasing the research of Dr. Shlomi Doron. Dr. Shlomi Doron is a professor at a Mechlala in Ashkelon, and he does some fascinating research. He doesn't have a lot online, um, but from what he does have, it's definitely worth looking into. For example, he has a very interesting article on a comparative analysis between chosrei b'teshuva, right? People who, what we would dub the ba'alei teshuva, and chosrei b'shirela, people who go the opposite direction. And what does it look like? What are the similarities? What are the differences? What are the things they need to relearn to transition? So here he went and did some research on the phenomenon of, and if you look at source two, mecha, lama charedim mitablim, why do you find that in the Orthodox community, when a child absconds, abandons the path of Torah and mitzvot, the child sits shiva? Yeah, why do they mourn on that child? If you look at the bold, that's important, that word, and I'll share with you in a minute why. He says, when you find a religious Ashkenaz family, the child decides this path doesn't work for him. These rules don't work. Theologically, it doesn't make sense. Personally, it doesn't make sense. So he decides to leave religion. He literally puts his life at risk. When he starts his life, in, for lack of a better word, the secular world, his parents are going to rip their clothing. They'll sit shiva, they'll start mourning. So let's look at what happens here. He has a case of Nevdan said Shlomi uh, is doing research contemporarily. So he said, unfortunately, uh, there's no records, right? We're talking about when did this practice start in Ashkenaz of children leaving the fold to be sit shiva. We obviously have accounts here and there of different families um, from Rebekiva Eger to Rebekah Salan. There are anecdotal evidence that this is a practice that's happened quite a while ago, but what he's done is he's interviewed 200 participants uh, and families on what happens when a child leaves the fold, right? Today they have a word for it, they call it OTD, which means off the dare, which is so wrong in so many ways, but the presumption of they've left the path, not a path or our path or the crooked path, but they've left the with a capital T, right? So what happens? And here we have the response of 200 individuals and what it looks like. So here you have a case where uh, there's a guy named Yitzhak. Yitzhak is 21 years old, and for whatever reason, he decides he's leaving. He goes, he moves out, uh, rents himself an apartment, changes the way he dresses, 
um, throws away the religious elements, and he's transitioning to a new life. If you look at, uh, again, source to the right side, the third paragraph that's bolded, Dr. Shlomi Doron, So this is the first research that we have on what is this phenomenon of mourning. So he finds So he went out to figure out what is this mourning process? that goes on when a child or a youth or an individual leaves the community. And he found something very interesting, that this is a phenomenon specific to the Haredi, the religious Orthodox Ashkenazi community. And more than it's a sign of actual mourning, of grieving, of a loss, on the fact that here's a child, right? and think about it from a parent's perspective. A parent raised a child in what they thought was the most golden path for them, and here's the child saying, no, whatever you've told me, I reject. Whatever you've given me, I don't want. The views and the values that you've tried instilling in me for years, they're not mine. Right? So here you have, though, it's not that they're mourning the loss of the child. I believe it should have said bat, but the article says ben, so I left it intact. It says more than the phenomenon of mourning is that the child has left the path, it's really just signaling. Are you familiar with the word signaling? Yes? Okay, you have a lot of this now in, during COVID. And I'll give you an example. We call it virtue signaling, right? Where, for example, there's somebody driving in their own car. The windows are totally shuttered. There's nobody else in the car and they're wearing double masks, right? It's a form of virtue signaling. It has nothing to do with reality as much as I'm sharing my perspective with you on how I think things have to be and things need to be done. Signaling is we do things as society. I recently spoke to somebody and said, you know, I drive a car that's twice my mortgage and I don't even care for the car, but I need the car so that my other community members know who I am. So my car is not just to drive, it's actually I'm signaling something to the community. Another conversation for another time of the pathology of that. So he says more than they're actually mourning the individual, it's signaling to the community. Why are we sitting Shiva? Why are we being so demonstrative? So that the individual who left the community doesn't forfeit the chances of their siblings ever getting married. So that the community gets a very clear message. Whose side is this family really on? Whose values do they really have? If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. You look down. So what happens? We know that in Judaism, we really don't have such a concept. Okay, At least in normative Judaism, there's no such concept of sitting on Shiva on a human being that's alive, that's living. Uh, we don't have that phenomenon. Now, yes, later on, we have in the 1700s, 1800s, a relatively new phenomenon where People are becoming masculine, going out. This is where you have a startup. Families not just cutting off the individual, but pretending the person is actually dead. Um, for example, one of the most famous cases is with uh, Yisrael Segal. Anybody familiar with that case? No. Okay. So Yisrael Segal, I believe, was born in the Shari Chesed neighborhood in Jerusalem uh, to actually a religious Zionist family. Okay. 
uh, group religious Zionists eventually followed the footsteps of his older brother, Rabbi Don Segal, who is a pretty famous Osh Yeshiva in the Lithuanian community. Uh, he follows him to Panovich, and he goes, he learns. Ultimately, he decides to leave, and he becomes an extremely famous journalist in Israel. When he leaves, again, the fold, um, his family sits Shiva, and when he dies years later on Sukkot, there's a famous Teshuvah, and I will, I will spare the embarrassment of the one who gave that Teshuvah. One of the foremost Lithuanian leaders was asked by Rev. Dan Segal and his family, should we sit Shiva, now that he actually died, he passed away, uh, should we sit Shiva? Now, the fact that that question exists should indicate something very sick about the society that breeds such questions. I don't need to ask anybody if I should love my child. You understand? If that's something you have to ask, that's an indicator of a very bigger ill that we're not going to deal with today. The worst part is the answer is no, you should not sit Shiva because he already died. Today, only his body died, but he already died as soon as he died, decided to go out what they call the Tarbudra, the evil path. You already sat Shiva. This person's been dead for years. Doesn't matter how many commentators um, loved him in Israel, doesn't matter how much influence he's had on the shape and development of society. That's irrelevant. He's been dead. And ultimately, the family did not sit Shiva. So you find over here, Batkufam, in the fourth paragraph by the bold. Batkufam, modern, in, um, in the more modern times, Hadam Arishon, Shit Parsem, Sheshru. Right? So he said, uh, this is the story. She have here one of the most uh, classic stories where child or young individual, because he wasn't a child, decides to leave the path of his family and they sit Shiva. Now, if you look at the next paragraph, there are three different ways that the families, right? There are three levels of kashrut. So we're talking about the super mahadran, then the okay, and the eh, they're just faking it, right? So you thought that there was only competition in how long your skirt has to be and how big your beard has to be and what kind of kosher you don't and don't eat. Even when it comes to mourning on the children that have left the fold, there are three different categories. Okay, so if you look at paragraph, the second to, to the bottom. Right, I interviewed about 200 individuals who uh, left the, the religious community. And I can testify that the words death, rending of the garments, this is not an isolated case. Right? The community always likes to say, no, nah, it's not true. It was just one stu- crazy individual. Don't believe their testimony. You have 200 individuals who've all shared a very similar, if not same experience. Anybody who's left the fold knows that there's a certain amount of death. Now, this is obviously not exclusive to leaving the Haredi community. Anybody that transitions to something that's different than where they were will experience a loss of, there's a chapter, there's a book that's being closed, and there's a new journey. So what happens? You have three different levels of Shiva. The first one is Hatipus Hashalem, right? This is the whole package. This is like premium. So these people literally will sit shiva, cover up the mirrors, rip their garments, not shower for seven days, then observe the seven days, the 30 days, and literally mourn for a year. You then have right in between, which is they'll take on some of the mourning, but not everything. And then the third one, which is, you know, this is like on the fridge. They're almost going off with their own children, right? 
eh, they absorb some signs of mourning, but nothing really significant. They found, if you look at column two, Gila Doron. So Doron finds in his research, they mostly sit shiva on their sons. He says, but obviously not only. Now he asks the question. The death is final. Death is literally the end. Yeah. Is there no way of return? What happens if the child does teshuva? What happens if the child comes back? And he says something fascinating. So he was invited to a family who is, he doesn't know this, but when he walks in, he sees them sitting shiva. And he feels super uncomfortable because he didn't realize he was coming at such an intimate moment. And he turns to the family. And if you look at paragraph three on the left column, he says, I couldn't for the life of me understand why was I invited during the mourning period. He thought he was coming to interview them. He didn't realize he's coming the week of Shiva. So I asked them, Does it not bother you that I'm coming when you're literally in the process of mourning? When people go through a death, we know the first three days, the person's not even capable of meeting other people, let alone speaking, hosting, right? This is the most traumatic time period. And here they're hosting him. And they look at him and they say, This should never happen to you. His children left, his child left the fold of the Orthodox community and he joined the army. He only joined the army just like David HaMelech and all of his army. But, and therefore, they're at the initial phases of the journey of mourning. He said, I, I was so shocked myself. Now listen to what shocked him the most. I never bumped into such a phenomenon. I've never sat across two parents. They're speaking to me from almost the most apathetic, rational place. They're telling me their son died. They're explaining to me why he died. Right, how he died on the altar of national service and joining the army so he could protect the country. And I'm standing here in shock. It, they're talking to me almost like this is something so normal. He said, I was so shocked. I, I was tongue tied. I didn't even have anything to ask them. So he says, What happens here? How does this process work? So interestingly enough, Unfortunately, when Law language is real death, so people know when is the time of death when the person died over here. Because the person didn't really die, um, they base it off what we call the shmua of death. When was the family notified of the death? So God forbid if somebody didn't actually see the death, but it came to them as a message, what would that look like? So they go to the rabbi, right? They go to the rabbi of the community. And this is the process. At first, when they see the child who's at risk, right, no longer wants to go to the Beth Knesset, no, one, no longer wants to wear the same clothing, eat the same foods, they try what's known as a rehabilitation process, right? Let's get them back into the fold. If that doesn't work, they send them to some kind of, um, like a rehab, but not actually a rehab, a rehab that's been produced by the community to, to make sure that the child or individual fits back into the box. This is not a rehab, right? This is not a rehabilitation process of why is the individual leaving? What's bothering them? As much as, how do we get them back? 
when they get to the stage where they know, hold on, this is a point of no return, oh, that's when the rabbi will say, okay, starting now, this is when the child died. And if it's now, what time is it, nine o'clock? Okay, so nine o'clock, this is when you're going to be kovea. This is when you're going to ascertain on the death certificate. Yitzchak, 21 years old, died at nine o'clock. This is when the family starts to observe Shiva. Even as I speak it, it makes so little sense to me because it is so absurd. And yet we're talking about something that is happening as you and I speak. You don't have to believe me. Just go onto Facebook and try to join a couple of groups that will give you a little more information of what goes on when somebody tries to leave. So look at the, the second to last paragraph on page two on the left side. Chashafti said, I thought, I thought I'm going to meet like the crazy radicals, right? When I'm sharing with you, of course, it's the fringe people, it's the nut jobs. And he said, I, I can't fathom, and I couldn't fathom that parents would sit Shiva on their children who are still alive. He said, but very quickly I realized these are not fringe things. These are not isolated incidents. This isn't a one-off that has happened. Right? This crosses all the boundaries. Uh, you could be of Lithuanian descent, you could be of Hasidic descent. I found normal families. I wasn't looking at crazy, right? We're looking at families that are considered mainstream, considered normal, are not considered fringe, and these are the practices that they're doing. I was looking for, you know, there's got to be some story here. There's got to be some kind of blemish that I can say, oh, this was it. I didn't find but what I did find, is it something interesting I did find across the board? This only happened in families of Ashkenaz descent. Now, a different conversation for a different time about culture and how families develop and what families do and don't mean. Not often what the West decides is right and correct and proper uh, is not is necessarily what's normal, healthy, and functioning. I'm going to leave it at that because it's something very sensitive. It says, it's a, We know that culturally, and I believe it's not just culturally, but theologically, philosophically, right? It's not, I hate when people, oh, it's because Svaradim have such warm hearts. This has nothing to do with our warm hearts and lack of brains. This is a very intentional attitude we have towards human beings, specifically those who are related to us by blood. Yeah. The ability for a person to have a family member that they don't talk to for 20, 30 years, I don't know, if that's progress, then I'd rather go back to what the cavemen were doing because beating each other up and then sitting down for tea makes a lot more sense. Right. He says, he says, interestingly enough, the Ashkenaz community think the need for the individuals to match the community is much stronger than in the Sephardic community of we need to be like them. Now, I wonder, and this would obviously be a different research, what happens to Svaradim who dress up and try to meet Ashkenazim? I wonder if that phenomenon unfortunately changes along with the costume and everything else that goes with it. I don't know. Um, another research project. But he says something fascinating. If you look at page three, this phenomenon, so we have the different categories. Some people sit more shiva, less severe, 
Um, but the point of it is really not mourning the child. The purpose of it is to protect the family, right? To protect the siblings. So here's one child who, you know, 23 years old, picked up and decided to join the Israeli army. But now he has 15 younger siblings who are never going to get married, won't have schools to go to, who are going to be thrown out of the community. And the parents, in an attempt to save their family, has to let one go. I once had a conversation with somebody who is related to me that lives on a different coast. And I said to them, what are you going to do with a child that's not like you? Now, what are you going to do with a child that starts challenging you, starts po poking holes, starts rebelling in the most healthy fashion? So the individual said, well, that's when I'll send them to you. I said, oh, okay, at least we're good for something. I said, but it's your child. And the individual said, yeah, that's why we have a lot of them. That's why we have a lot of them. So one or two are going to end up in your side of the camp. What could I do? But it's mind-boggling. I once spoke to, again, another individual on the other side, and they told me that their child was, okay, this, let, let's put it this way. Their child was being hurt in school in a way that is unacceptable. And I said, are you going to speak to the principal? She said, no. I said, are you going to do something? She said, what do you want me to do? I have five other kids in the school. If I will come and speak to the principal, not just that one child, all my children are going to be thrown out of the school. And the other schools are going to very quickly get the memo, you don't want this parent, because this parent makes problems. So what could I do that for the benefit, the greater benefit of my children, I have to make sacrifices? Obviously, my question is, if you live in a community that you have to make sacrifices of your children, that should make you question why you're part of such a community to begin with. Yes? If you look at paragraph one, two, three. So this is another story. Not Yitzhak, not the one who went to the army, not Yitzhak Segal, Segal. Another, Shemishpachto yashva lavshiva v'arba shanim achalkach. Horrible story. He left the community, right? Parents said shiva, they mourned for him. A couple of years later, four years later, he contracts cancer. And he's going through horrible treatment, uh, suffering, and ultimately dies. What happens? You know what comes to his funeral? The friends that he hung out with. The people that he lived with. His family isn't present. Because to them he had died six years ago when he left. What does the cancer have to do with anything? So here's a very interesting act where the child is notified. You are officially going to be erased from the community. And the signal is we're going to erase your phone from the phone number. So you don't exist. I have no way of contacting you. You have no way of contacting me. You're a nobody to me. Right? It's more than just I unfriended you from Facebook. It's I've obliterated you from our, our family. Look at uh, the second paragraph on the right, second from the bottom. When the child, the individual who leaves the community hears, oh, it's the time of our hearing, right? He already knows exactly what's being spoken about. Omar Doron. Zumaka Ayuma. This is, think about the psychological impact of an individual saying, the people you love, the people you hate, the people you've known for your entire life, you're dead. You are now dead. The Shmua, right? The hearing of, through the rabbi, this person is officially dead. It's been told to your parents. It's over. He said, interestingly enough, I thought that the child would go through some severe breakdown at this point. He said, well, no, he doesn't. 
כנראה אדם חרדי שעוזב את העולם הזה יודע בתוכו שזה יגיע. He assumes that a child who leaves the Orthodox world already knows what the price tag is to leave, simply because it's been demonstrated before. It's the cousin, it's the uncle, it's the aunt, it's the nephew, it's the neighbor. Everybody knows what happens. So when you choose to leave, you know the inevitable will happen. Hey, Mavrim, Ever Prati, they go through a different mourning process. They have already started the process of mourning, of mourning a life that they thought was, of mourning a life that never will be, of relationships that may or may never exist, of figuring out who they are now stepping out of their own boundaries. They've already started their own mourning process, and there's almost a relief when the family not just sits Shiva, but recognizes it. It's not them now battling inward. It's now official. The whole community knows. This is no longer the privacy of home and the office of therapists who are trying to convert them back to their path. Right? This is no longer a private issue. And there's a certain sense of relief to know, that's it. I've walked out, and they, they acknowledge that. Avalama. Look at paragraph um, on page three, the left side. Lechora, en bezeshum hegayon. He says, why, why is this the case? We're looking at a phenomenon of people at risk who are choosing differently than the community they come from, and the response of the community is, you're dead. To us, you're dead. You don't exist. He says, why? It seems not to have any, any kind of, any explainable answer to it. Wouldn't it be enough just, okay, so cut yourself off from the trial. Why do you have to do this whole procedure? Right? If you want to be estranged, just don't answer the phone. Right? There's a very easy change your locks. There's a really easy way to cut people out of your lives. If you don't know how to do it, ask your friend. I'm sure they know. Right? Why this whole procedure? Why this process? The sitting shiva, the morning, is really not a personal response. Okay? The families who feel that their children are leaving, they're struggling, that are really hurting both them and the family, are not sitting shiva because they're mourning the loss of the child. Ultimately, they're signaling to the community, we agree with you that in order for us to still be here, we're going to have to let one of us go. And the action of Shiva doesn't tell you so much about the parents' feelings or the siblings' feelings, as much as the communal force of making sure that those who leave don't come back. And those who are in don't ever think of leaving, because the price you pay for leaving is death. Now, this is a fascinating piece of research, which obviously there are many facets to it. I found the Jewish Observer, right, which is um, the Agoda. Uh, newsletter that's been put out for years and years. I don't know if it's still current, but this is from 1999. So we'll see in a minute, we're going to talk about Rav, Rav Kapach's uh, essay uh, and how he deals with youth at risk. But here, he, he deals with it in the 60s and 70s. This is about 30 years later. The Jewish Observer has an entire edition on at youth risk, uh, which you can find online. So if you look at the article at the bottom where the bold is, So they talk about you have a child, a guide to therapy, right? Helping the at-risk child. The experienced Torah observant, I'm on the next page, therapist, will naturally reject the above false understanding. Oh, sorry. Let, let's look back for a second. Let's look at page three on the bottom. Stories abound of secular and non-Jewish therapists incorrectly interpreting the teenager's struggles as being a natural life transition. And right, so we talked about Erickson, about life changes, 
um, the natural progression and actually encouraging the teenager's behavior and the parents and community to learn to accept it. Could you imagine people were given the audacity to think? People are giving the, the teenagers the ability to use their free will, to exercise their own individuality. How dear they? How dangerous is it when you meet a therapist who listens to an individual? I obviously say this a mockery. Right? How dangerous is it to let people think? And the Bible says, the, so that's why their whole push is, we need to send to therapists who are tied to Dat Torah, right? To the higher echelons of the community so that the experienced Torah, and I'm on the next page, observant therapists will naturally reject the above false understanding of the teenager's struggles. Obviously blame the teenager. Obviously don't listen to the teenager. Obviously push the teenager back and make sure that it doesn't reflect on the community. And that's why we need to have therapists who work for the rabbis. Um, in my values and ethics course that I teach in social work, one of the topics we talk about is the danger of the blurring of lines and the unethical behavior that happens when professions, professions always have to meet and collaborate. That's what interdisciplinary teams are. But when one profession is used as a front for another tactic, that's just called missionizing. And that's really dangerous. But I want to look at what happens when we have a rabbi who weighs in from a balanced perspective on the exact same issue. So we have here a piece from Rav Yosef Kappa, uh, who is a rabbi in Israel, uh, most profoundly known for his work on the, the Rambam. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, more than welcome to go to shiriti.com. You will find about 51 introductions on Rav Yosef Kappa. Uh, suffice it to say that if you Google Rav Yosef Kappa, uh, you'll see some videos, not many, but the way he sits you know, at his desk wearing a sweater, writing, 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 uh, you would never know how great he is. You would never know that this is the most brilliant scholar who understood, understood what Torah was, understood how it needed to be transmitted, understood the dangers um, of con conventional, and I would say modern, uh, innovations in the Torah, and you look at it, this personality, it's, uh, it's something that is really worth the time to, to look into. So here's a letter that he, he's responding to. Now, interestingly enough, whenever he would respond to his letters, he would erase all the accolades. So people would write to him, you know, rabbi, grand rabbi, all the titles. When he would respond, he would just erase them. It's not about me. They say when he would answer his phone, he would say, Shalom, Mishpachat Kapach, Miru Shalayim. Hi, well, welcome to the residence of the Kapach family. The, it's a litmus test. You know, when people are great, they have no need to be, a, they don't have the need to then show up their greatness. And you find over here, Moshe Anav Mikol Adam, right, the greatest compliment. I believe Rav Yosef Kapak, Anav Mikol Adam, he was bold as a lion when it came to being Midayek. So here he gets a letter about, we have youth. Now we're talking about in the 60s and 70s in Israel. Okay, so in the 60s and 70s, there's a letter sent him by a religious uh, youth leader who says, we have a problem of kids at risk, right? We have youth at risk. We have people who are on the streets, they're doing drugs, they're drinking, they're, they're being sexually um, promiscuous. What do we do with them? There are options in the kibbutzim where we can send them so they can get rehabilitated. They, can, they have facilities that are set up uh, where they can take care of our youth. But these are kibbutzim. These are not people who don't believe. These are people who believe that you should never believe and we should bury everything that's religious. What do we do with these children? Are we allowed to send them? Are we allowed to offer them this alternative? And I want to look at the teshuvah with you. If you look at page four, 
כנר שלום, he says, in response to your question, In response to your question of, can a religious youth leader advise the individual, why don't you go to that kibbutz? They have a really good rehab. They have a really good integration program. They have a really good transitional program that you will benefit from. Are they allowed to advise them to go there? He says, Hashela Sibucham on the second paragraph. Hashela Sibucham b'mikzat. It's a complicated question. He says, there's no simple, easy solution. Because every solution, there are cons to it. He says, this is a very complicated, sensitive issue. And every solution really has a lot of cons to it. And all the cons also have pros. So I'm going to bring more than just the simple answer to your question, but I'm going to bring context. He said, and we're going to have to pick the path of least resistance, right? Sometimes you're not, the, the choice between good and evil is easy. Choosing between good and better, bad and worse, that's much more difficult. So let's look at what, what's the problem. Before we can even talk about the pros and cons, let's try to put ourselves in the youth's shoes. You hear those words? Before we're going to judge what's good for you, Why don't we for a second try to understand you? Why don't we try to understand what's driving you? He says, Let's try to imagine the person and the struggle they're going through like it is. Before you're going to start deciding life and death for another human being, before you're going to decide should we throw them out of the community, Should we rehabilitate them? Should we take their number and call? Why don't you put yourself in their shoes for just a few minutes? Try to understand what is driving this individual. He says, look at this next paragraph. He says, you're looking at somebody who's angry. Somebody who, for whatever reason, these are people who are struggling. They wake up in the morning, they're depressed, they're angry, they're sad, they're worried. And who do they blame? society. They're looking at society and saying, you are the cause of all my problems. We're in this horrible state of being and you are the cause of it. And they feel a certain amount of anger. I need to, I need to get back to that. Right? You've hurt me in ways that whether they're imaginable or real, I feel you did me wrong. And as such, I want to take revenge. There's a fascinating book written by One of my professors, his name is Dr. Jonathan Fast. Uh, it's called Ceremonial Violence, which has a prequel called Beyond Bullying. And he's done research on all the school shootings that have happened in the United States. And there's one common thread. Okay? Those who have gone out to actively shoot have all felt that society has done them wrong and has bullied them and victimized them in a way that they want revenge. Some of them, yes, they also want to go down. But all of them were seeking revenge for the injustice that society has done to them, perceived, imagined, or real. They sleep during the day. So what happens? You have these youth who, they sleep until five, six in the afternoon, and then they're up all night partying again, and then they sleep, and they have this horrible, vicious cycle. And somehow their perception is that society at large is the cause of all their disconnect. And what happens? So here they left, 
notice he differentiates. He says, number one, so they're left obviously absent of their religious life. They're also absent of their belief, their faith. But you could have people have Torah and have no faith. And you could have people who have faith and don't have the practical side of Torah. He says, and they have no means of supporting themselves. It's not like they're a bunch of jobless, unemployed people because they can't work. If they despise anything that's institutionalized, anything that to them seems like a threat and danger and against their plan, they hate. So here you have people who are not just unproductive, but they're really harms to society as well as to themselves. If you picture for a second the pain, the struggle of the individual who's living with this thought, I'm part of a society that hates me, that I hate, that has caused me to suffer so much. It says now, He says, see, the problem is most of the youth that you're asking for do not come from secular homes. Because if they came from secular homes, of course, I would say, send them to the kibbutzim. They're only going to benefit. He said, but most of the children you're talking about, they come from batim misoratim, right? They come from masoti, traditional homes, Sephardic homes like, like ours, keep Shabbat, keep kosher, some, some more, some less, but the traditions are there. We're not talking about a community that is completely disconnected. And if you look at the bottom of four, he said, for those who grew up in a secular background, obviously it would make perfect sense. Send them to the rehab on the kibbutzim. It's good for them. It's good for societies. It's good for them to be set up in these programs. It's, it's good for society to have youth that are dangerous off the street. Um, just recently, I read in Yeshiva World News. This is from November 30th, 2021. There's alert and flatbush. Youths have stolen numerous vehicles from Brooklyn Schools over Shabbos in recent months. Right? We're talking about current events where a disturbing phenomenon has been taking place in Flatbush over the past several months in which a group of teenagers have been breaking into shuls on Friday night. Sadly, these teenagers are members of from family uh, Flatbush households. He says the first thing you're going to do is you're going to get the kids off the street. Society will be taken care of. Niske Mamon, the damage is monetary damage. You'll also make sure that not only do they not harm society, but they don't engage with other youths and influence them. And how often is it that you have somebody who's been on a good track and then bad friends bring them down? He says, so for them, the solution is perfect. What about though the child who grows up in a Masalti home? Well, maybe, you know, they kept Shabbat, they kept kosher. And now we're going to send them to kibbutz where beforehand they may, even if they didn't keep kosher, they didn't keep Shabbat, they didn't keep Torah mitzvot, it came from a child, childish, childish, mischievous side. So now we're going to send them to people who decidedly want to uproot their religion and implant new ideas. So what about the few youth who may be left alone, they would actually yes return. Maybe they would come back. Yeah, they do their sin from 12 to 15, from 12 to 20, and they would come back. And here we're sending them to a place where for sure the values, the morals, and the teachings are not going to parallel to those that they come from at home. But the truth is, I don't have so much hope. Because even for those few who actually do end up coming back, who do end up leaving their path, who are no longer at risk, is that that number is so little that it's unfair to make the calculation not to send the majority because of the minority who would actually come home. 
Now, it's very interesting in Chacham Tzvi Zohar's book, uh, where he brings bits and pieces of Rav Kaplik's article. He says, this article is actually written in the 60s and 70s when the Iratika, um, Yerushalayim, is now becoming a, play, a center for like social clubs, right? Now, if you go to the old city, it's a whole different scene today. But we're talking about in the 60s, 70s, where there are pubs opening, people, societies changing, the streets are filling. And Rav says, who are we to fool ourselves that these youths are keeping kosher? They're anyway going out, they're drinking, they're, they're being sexually promiscuous, they're doing all the things that are harmful to themselves anyway. Look at the bottom of page four. Shad Kong. All the way on the bottom. He said, I want you to know, for the majority of these youth, it would be really, really good for them to go to these kibbutzim. Sham, why is it so good for them? You know what they're going to learn there? They're going to learn how to be proper citizens of the world. You hear what he said? He didn't say they're going to become Bnei Yeshiva. They're not putting on hats and jackets and growing beards. The girls aren't suddenly wearing skirts and praying at the Kotel three times a day. They are going to become functioning, healthy human beings that will contribute to society. They'll learn some kind of profession. They'll be able to sustain themselves. They're not doing drugs on the side of the road. They now have a job. They have a vocation. They have a profession. There's no reason to hold back the majority who would benefit from it from the minority who may be negatively impacted. Look at page five. And this is something so critical. The says, our job is to teach the youth one of these calculations of can we send children who are at risk from Masorti homes to the kibbutzim, where definitely the religion not only won't be pushed, but it will be denigrated. He says, our priority is to make sure that they have a profession, that they become functional members of society, that they don't become unemployed, they don't become poverty struck. He says, and here we find Chazal, and he brings three different sources where Chazal tells us, the father's obligation, how do you know that somebody has to teach their son some kind of trade, their children? And Chizkiyahu says, just like you marry a woman, right? He says, just like you have an obligation to marry a woman, so too you have an obligation to teach your child a trade in Torah. Just like you have an obligation to learn Torah, just like the parent has an obligation to teach him Torah, the parent has an obligation to teach a child a profession that is sustainable, that is mechubad, that the person will not be poverty struck and living off government unemployment and disability for the rest of his life. It's amazing how there's a society that's built around glorification of taking funds from the government and the denigration of getting a job that's mechubad, that pays your bills, that you don't have to take handouts. It says, he says, we see how much Chazal valued Milacha work. I want you to go down on the bottom uh, of that paragraph. This is from Sanhedrin. 
פרשת יתרו, it says, כשם שנצטוו ישראל על מצוות עשה של שבת, just like the Jewish people have an obligation to rest on שבת, to cease from work, נצטוו על המלאכה בששת הימים. We have the same obligation to work six days a week. So it's not like we have an obligation, Shabbat, you stop working, and the six days a week, do whatever you want. Just like Shabbat is something you have to keep, so are the six days of work something that we have to keep. This is something that would, it would be wise to plaster all over the walls with the Pashkavim. Rukavach says, when we take into account rehabilitation, we have to understand that before we will rehabilitate religiosity, We need to restore humanity. We need to give the youth who is struggling the ability to succeed. You have somebody who's angry, somebody who's hurt, somebody who's suffering, and you're going to be shoving religion down his throat? He said, I'm not telling you I'm not concerned about their religion. I am. Of course I want them to be Shomrei Tzolai Mitzvot. But before we can focus on that, we need to rehabilitate the person. What does it help to have somebody who keeps Tzolai Mitzvot but is a broken human being? What do you have? So you have a shattered soul, a shattered body, a shattered mind. Ha'ikah, the person goes to the Beth Knesset. What's, what good is that? Rav Kabach continues. Ad kan mibchinat hanarim halal. He said, so from the, ben- the pure benefit of the youth, it's enough of a reason to send them to kibbutzim, where we know for sure their religion will be harmed, but their humanity will be restored. They will be able to learn a profession. They will be able to sustain themselves. They will get their feet back into society. where they'll be able to re-enter because the exit and entry aren't closed off, right? It's we're taking a little scenic detour. These are individuals who it hasn't worked for them up until now. And our job, our job is to understand them. Our job is to meet them where they're at. Our job is to then facilitate within them the growth that they need from where they need it. Not what we've decided to push down their throat. Not with our scare tactics that we've decided but to be able to figure out what does this human being mean? He says more than that. Okay, so this is all the benefit for the youth. To bring them back to a natural, normal lifestyle. Right? We're not talking about a religious lifestyle. From a humanistic perspective, we will restore them to their life. You know what it means for a human being to feel like they're part of society again? That they could walk into a store and they could pay for their own sandwich? That they could sit around the table and their opinion will be valued? That they will be invited to the family events because they're just another part of the family? Here we're talking about people who, for whatever reason, don't feel apart. They feel rejected by society. Rav Kapach says, if we have an ability to rehabilitate them, even if it's not on a religious level, on a humanistic level, of course we'll take that opportunity. Let's help them get the feeling of alienation, of estrangement. Let's get that to disappear. We talked about attachment issues. If we can help people find your identity within, You don't need to lose your individuality to be part of the colorful world that we have. You can be a somebody and not a nobody and yet still be a part of us. If we can help them feel less alienated and open the door for them to come back, so what if the root is more scenic? 
So what if it's not conventional? So what if it goes against our religious values? If we're going to bring the humanity back and the individual will know the door's never been closed. You've just gone a different route. Just but more than that, if you look at, uh, again, left column, second, you want to know the benefit to the community? We talked about the individual and what their process of re-entry to the community may or may not look like. A re-entry doesn't mean things go back to the way they were. But if we're able to help the individual, of course we should. Rav Kapach says, but you want to know who else is going to benefit? Us. Society will benefit. Remember the statistics I read to you? About the 200,000 homicides that happen a year, right? About the victims of stabbings, of death, of rape, of murder. We as society are going to benefit. And he brings the story of the Ben Solel Nore, right? He says, could you imagine what we find in the Torah, the 13-year-old who we already know is going to be a menace to society. He will create chaos, havoc, destroy society and ultimately hurt Everybody, the Torah says, we need to stop him in his tracks. But Kabbalah says, here we're not talking about killing the individual. To the contrary, today we have solutions that work. We have the ability to send this individual to places that he will relearn behaviors, patterns, so that us as a community, we're going to benefit. Right? We look at the individual who's struggling and say, it's his problem. What do I care if there are people at risk? I'm not at risk. That says, how do you know you're not at risk? Of course you're at risk. Everybody's at risk. Everybody's at risk for something. If we live in a community where we care about the individual, it only makes sense to deal with the individual in the most healthy fashion that works for them. And he ends off. He says, therefore, He says, in summary, to answer your question, should we send the youth, the at-risk individual, to places that will benefit them, even if it may come at the cost of their religion? Yes. It doesn't matter. In whatever capacity, send them. Even if it's going to mean sending them to places where we know what their beliefs are and what the antithesis of what we think and they think is. And he says, I want you to know the youth leaders, the therapists, the professionals, you should feel confident. So I want you to know you should feel confident that when you're sending these individuals to places that they will get the help they need, it's not just to the benefit of the individual, but it's the benefit of the society. You know, when I read this, part of me hurts. Because you know where I found this? I found it in the Ketavim of Rav Kapach in a book that I don't know when it was printed. I don't know when it's going to be printed again. In my house, we have Chelek Aleph, Chelek Bet. Chelek Gimel is not here. It is. You can find it in Otzer HaKakma. They actually do have a copy of it. But I'm looking at a solution that is so simple, so revolutionary. And yet, you know, he's writing it in the 60s and 70s. And today, we know this to be true. This is what every mental health professional worth their salt will tell you to do. Our Chachamim have solutions that are not just cutting edge, but they're in touch with society. They're in touch with the reality. Are they cultural? I don't know. Maybe that's what Dr. Doron has decided. Maybe they're not. Maybe they come from a philosophy. Maybe they come from a theology. 
maybe they come from a true understanding of the Torah and what God actually wanted from us. And it makes me sad that it's buried. And it makes me happy because we have a Chabura, we have programs, we have Shurim, and it's really our job to look at these letters, to look at the different approaches that we have to people who are struggling and say, well, which side of history am I going to be on? Because I know that I'm going to go with the Chachamim who dealt with society in ways that the ways of Hashem are pleasant. And if it's not Noam, you know it's not the way of Hashem. If you're being asked to do things that are so irrational to the people that you love, how could it be the way of God? How could it be the way of the Torah? And I'm asking us to study. You know, everybody has limited amounts of time to what they can study. Study the things that matter. We have gold mines that are hidden. And Baruch Hashem, I believe, you know, this week there were three shurim on Monday. On Wednesday and to, uh, Monday, Wednesday, today, I keep coming back because these are the words that will propel us not just into the future, but will bring Amisel and the rest of the world to a good, healthy place where, as society, we understand how to be individuals and make place for everybody. I want to thank you so much for coming. Um, at this point, if any of you need to go, please feel free to. Uh, for anybody who would like to stick around with any questions, I'm here. Please feel free as well. Okay, Betsy, go ahead. Not really a question, but I'd like to hear your voice. It's not really a question. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just find it hard to see that the religious values are, are not complementing this process. It feels like it would be, why take them away to learn something which we should be doing in our own community? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that's a critique on the values that we consider to be religious, you know, Unfortunately, we've created a Judaism that is very sterile. Yeah, I, I once talked to somebody. I, Betsy, it was after our classes that we had on Tanakh. And somebody in my family called me, how dare you say those things about Eliyahu and Abi? How dare you say that about Shaul HaMelech? I said, how dare you learn Tanakh like they're museum artifacts? We've created a religion that is so disconnected. Like, yeah, it's nice. We have, you know, on the weekends, we share Parsha thoughts and irrelevant divrei Torah because why would they influence my life? I agree with you. I believe that if we truly understood our Chachamim, our Torah, we have the solutions, right? We don't need Eric Erickson to tell me what Freud said to say, oh, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, though, that takes a certain amount of boldness uh, that I have not yet seen. I have to be honest, I'm hopeful. There's a Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig uh, who has recently taken on the, really the bull by its horns to deal with mental health issues from the perspective of religion. Um, I haven't been personally in touch with him, though his, we're, we're connected. And I'm hoping that as I learn more about what he does, um, that question will no longer exist. But I agree with you. Uh, shouldn't we? Yes, that's a critique on us. It's a critique on us that we are stuck in archaic museums trying to figure out, well, if you held on to the talit on this side and I held on to it on this side and neither of us, you could just buy a new talit on Judaica.com. Why don't we deal with relevant issues? So I agree with you. Thank you, Betsy. Um, I'm here. If anybody needs to go, like I said, thank you so much for learning with me. Thank you for being here. Avi, is there anything you want to add? Um, Yo Yosef. Like Yosef. Yosef. Oh, Yosef. Mazal to Yosef and family. You have to unmute yourself, though. It's actually Sarah. I, it's Sarah and our cute, beautiful baby, Hizkia, am I right? Hizkia. Hizkia, you talk. Hi. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, hi. That that was such a fascinating and really important and 
I, I will be honest, terrifying, <laughs> sorry, talk, uh, yeah, um, and very real, the, real and terrifying. Um, the, the terrifying tactics I took from my childhood. <laughs> no. Hi, Simon. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> hey, um, uh, so, uh, um, what was I going to say? Um, maybe you already said it, maybe you already said it, oh, oh, um, and you did such a phenomenal job by the way it's a, such a phenomenal talk and um it will it really opens up uh a, you know these really important discussions that need to happen um in terms of uh in terms of um sorry now now okay in terms of like um like sitting shiva like for for children right and but like in and staying in your community, um, uh, how do how can that um, how can parents make that happen? Instead, and like not sitting shiva, like obviously that has to like obviously there has to be a change in like the the psychology of it. But also, do you feel like there need there there obviously needs to be also a systematic um, uh, change. Transformation, right in the system, in the system. I'm sorry, um, systematic <laughs> change um, as well. But um, do you maybe already talked about it? But like, um, do you do you find there could be any solution in that? Um, or yeah, does no, that, that, does that's that a really sense? that's a really good question. You know, when very often when we deal with addiction, we tell people that. The addiction was not a problem. It was a solution to a problem, uh, but it was a bad solution, right? People very often will do what they think is best in the situation, even though it's very, very bad, right? People will resort to violence because they think it's a solution. We obviously know that solution creates a host of other problems. People will do drugs. They will drink. They'll, right? I think that, you know, we're looking at a community with very many good people. And I have to put a disclaimer, Okay. I don't profess to be orthodox. I'm part of a whole different world that I'm very proud of and very comfortable being part of. Um, there are solutions to problems that are very bad solutions. Yes. Um, and I will always go to leadership because I honestly believe that people are good. I cannot tell you how many good family members I have, community members that I know. People are good. Okay. Uh, you'll meet the average human being. They're a good person. That's not normally where the problem lies. The pro problem almost all the time is in leadership. And when leadership is corrupt, then that will trickle down. And unfortunately, we're, leading with, we're, we're looking at a world that is, is dealing with tremendous, it's not lack of leadership, but very cruel leadership. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to the rule, okay? There are. Um, like I said, I come from a community that I'm very proud of, the rabbi that I grew up with, uh, for many things that he does. Uh, but there are exceptions to the rule. But in general, there's there's a Hasidic teaching, and I don't recall, I think it was Reb Mordechai of Lechavich, but I am not, don't hold me to it, where he says his Hasidim are all sitting around, right, because that's what all the Hasidim always do, they're sitting around, it's cold, and, and he starts crying. And they ask him, why are you crying? And he says, because I'm looking into the future, right? And he says, so why are you crying? He says, you know, I'm looking into the future, and I see that Mashiach is just about to come, right? So why are you crying? 
then I'm crying because I see the people and the people are so good. Then I'm, the people are ready. The people want, they're willing. So then I look at the leadership and the leadership is so abhorrent that they're the cause for all the destruction. So that's why I'm crying. And I very much feel that way. I feel that, you know, I, used, I believe that people have solutions to problems because that's what they know best to do. And I believe in order for change to happen, you know, I'm not sure. So I, sometimes I think it's going to start from the top down. Um, some, some days I'm less hopeful and I'm hopeful that maybe it'll be bottom up. But regardless, again, I, I believe people are good and leadership is corrupt. And when you see problems in the community, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting halakha, right? We know this is a halakha that when Yaakov Avino actually sends Yosef on his final journey to see his brothers, they were learning the halakha of Egla Arufa. Are you familiar with that halakha? Yeah, it's a very interesting halakha. So, yeah, the halakha is, let's say somebody, God forbid, is in New York City and they stay here, you know, they eat, they drink, you wave them goodbye, they're heading off to the next town. Three days later, they never show up at the next town. And then unfortunately, somebody says, oh, no, we found him. He was on the side of the road. He was killed. Right? So it says the elders of the community, both the one that he came from as well as the one he was going to, would have to come out, bring a sacrifice. And they would have to say, lo our hands did not spill this blood. I don't know about you. I always wondered, like, obviously you didn't kill her. Right? You're the Osh Yeshiva. You're like, you know, you're the Gadol Hador. You're the one who's sitting there and learning and pre Nobody thought you murdered him. So why are you the one? We should have said, you know, well, the people, the at-risk kids who we thought maybe, maybe they could have committed such a sin. Why, why aren't they the ones who have to go and say, sorry, we didn't do it. Right? And I believe very much, we don't think you murdered the individual. But if you claim to be the leader of a community, then the responsibility and what goes on in the community is also yours. And everything ultimately falls on your shoulders. And if you can't handle that responsibility, that's okay. So then stop leading people. Part of being in a leadership position means being able to take a stand. And like I said, unfortunately, I, I believe that people are good um, and the leadership is failing. And I'm hopeful. Obviously, I'm hopeful that, you know, we offer alternatives, uh, alternatives that have been here for thousands of years. Right? Going back to natural Judaism that Chacham Paor talks about a horizontal society where the checks and balance system is much, much greater, I believe is a hope. So to answer your, your question, yes, I believe it's a systemic change that needs to happen. Um, all right, any other questions? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, so good to see you, um, Sarah. So I come from a, a pretty different background, and I found this talk extremely maddening. <laughs> because when I finished conversion, I was immediately thrown in with a group of women whose children were considered off the derech, and we called on our own derech. <laughs> and it's really interesting. There is a couple rabbis in the traditional Ashkenazi um, world right now who have created a new understanding and a new safe place for parents to turn to with these children who would be thrown away. And um, I, I wish I could remember their names. It's been a couple of years since I've been in these groups. Um, and what we experienced in the years um, that us women were together, it was about three or four years we were together, was seeing parents having a compassionate understanding of their children 
becoming emboldened and empowered to be able to speak up to the community, to be able to show them that these are not people to be thrown away, that they're valuable assets, and that there are challenges and issues within the community that created the behaviors that were considered to be abhorrent. And it was really interesting. Many of us are still not very thrilled with choices our children made, but many of the children on their own with this compassionate perspective began to find and create their own path to be connected with Hashem, be connected with Torah, and be able to express who they are as individuals, become a valuable asset to society, and find their connection to Torah. Um, and I just, you know, I know that there's that going on in the background just because of what I, I just upon conversion, what I got thrown into because of the situation I had found myself in. And um, so I know that there are things out there that are starting. There is a wave. There's a demand that we don't just throw the children out, that we don't, you know, cut them off and say, you are no longer alive. And there is an awareness of that, of the power of being able to draw them back in their way. Um, you know, that Mary, is, I, you know, and I appreciate your sharing that though I struggle with the fact that you need an organization to tell you that you can love your child. Being, oh, and that's, that's totally wrong. That, but that tells but you how brainwashed I, things are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I believe uh, Rav Yonatan, who I'm on his marketing team, but he has a fact in my objective opinion, he has a very fascinating short video called The Modern Day Molech, which really addresses exactly this of how have we created a community. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm not targeting only one community. Um, but I, I'm, I'm focusing on we have a community who has also dealt with the same issues, right? Children, children youth, individuals who, for whatever reason, we're talking about the 60s and 70s where who, forget about who wants to be religious, who even wants to be Sephardic. Who wants, it, we're talking about a world where we're not on the popular side of things, and yet the clarity of Rav Kapach to say, of course these are our people. Of course we want to put them not just in the front of our mind, but make sure to do what benefits them, um, because that's the natural Jewish approach. That to me makes sense. What doesn't make sense is 60 years later when you know the Hoover Dam broke, and now we're trying to triage, so We've got all kind of parenting web workshops and psychologists coming in. I believe that, again, what I see is one path, which was natural and never crooked, and another one that's grappling in the dark. And I often wonder why we choose that one over the, the beautiful sweet waters that we have. Right. And I 100% agree. I do think the yeah. fact that people are speaking up is a, where a change point comes in where people are saying enough, this isn't working, something needs to change. And when that change point happens, then you can see changes filter up toward the leadership as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Devarman. And it, I'm hopeful, I'm honestly hopeful that, you know, some movements, like I said, they start from the top and others really, they start from the bottom and they become so overwhelmingly loud that the top has to take them into consideration. Um, I have to be honest, you know, when I, when I first got married eight years ago, my husband and I used to disagree on this all the time, amongst other things, obviously. But uh, I would always tell him that, you know, I think I could rehabilitate the community I come from, from within. And, you know, they say the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is really just the, the pessimist is an optimist with experience. 
So unbeknownst to me, he clearly had much more experience than I did. Eight years later, I, I'm not always as hopeful. Eight years later, I'm more hopeful that we are creating an alternative for people who are looking for a wholesome Jewish experience, a wholesome human experience. Um, not because I don't believe change can happen. I believe where there's life, there's hope. Sometimes, though, I see that, you know, sometimes the cancer has grown so big that it, it's unfortunately, it's not rehabilitatable anymore. And so thank you, Devorah Miriam. Means Do we have it? Okay. Um, I have another question oh, here. Oh, yeah, you're tough. Oh, um, you're tough. Oh, no. What is your opinion? Do you have any comments about the phenomenon of people who have stepped in to try to help or reach out to so-called youth at risk, but how there is sometimes bad actors who take advantage of youth at risk or families and um, youth in that situation and abuse the trust of the community and of the parents. Do you have any like comments about that situation? Are we talking about current events or are we talking about in general? Uh, I guess both. I mean, you can think of some examples. I can think of some examples. We, you know, we, but it's a problem which didn't just happen once or twice. It's a problem which is, seems to be sprinkled throughout the whole youth at risk system where there are people who to some degree or another in one way or another shouldn't be doing that job and are using it to take advantage of others. Well, I'm not going to comment on current events uh, simply because I, one, like I said, I'm, I'm not a part of the community that is dealing with its own turmoil. Um, I honestly, it's interesting to me to everybody so shocked by the community's response. I don't know what everybody was expecting. Meaning for hundreds of years, things have been swept under the carpet. Things have not been dealt with. Why should it have been different? I'm not, not that I'm, not that the story is not enraging, but I don't understand the rage of people. Oh, I thought the, why would you think the community would do anything different than they've done for the last hundred years? Right. So I, um, however, I believe that in general, when communities drag their feet to dealing with issues, they no longer have the luxury of dealing with the issue properly, right? So for example, if somebody starts off with a little, uh, they start off with a little sore on their hand, they have the luxury of, you know, finding different creams. If they never take care of it and eventually it turns into life-threatening issues, they no longer have the ability to now sit back, assess, reevaluate, choose, because we're talking about life and death. I think in general, you find the Orthodox world, I read a good quote, it said, anything that's not kosher today, give it 20 years, it'll be kosher, because it takes a good 20 years for new phenomena to become kosher, right? Um, I do recall when the internet, Asifa, for those who remember, that happened in city field, right? Biggest. So my personal rabbi that I grew up with did not want to send a delegation, and his whole premise was, the internet's not the problem. He said, more than it's not the problem, in 20 years, you're all going to need the internet. And then how are you going to take your pig and make it kosher? So it's, a, it's not a new phenomenon where the Orthodox world drags its feet, drags its feet, drags its feet, because it doesn't want to deal with the issues. And then when it's forced to deal with the issues, it deals with it very, very poorly. Yeah. Um, there's a very interesting book I recommend. It's called Hidden Heretics by Ayala Fader. It came out in 2020. A really interesting book on with the advent of psychology, again, 20 years after pop psychology made it into the United States, um, 
there's been a tremendous push of, okay, so now we can pathologize a lot of, a lot of things, right? I may have serious doubts about my Torah, my mitzvot, the lies that you tell me, the truths that I see. So instead of actually addressing them, there's become this familiar pathologicalization of, oh, it's because the person's mentally ill, it's because they're bipolar, they're schizophrenic. It's much easier to deal with things that way. And I think, again, because it's a triage versus a concerted effort, um, there's unfortunately not a lot of professional screening. And that's really important. Now, I wouldn't check. I don't know anybody that would send their child just to somebody because, oh, I heard they're good with children. What does that mean? There are standards for a reason. There's a reason that when I pledge my allegiance to the professional world of social work, there are values and ethics I must uphold. They're not vague terms of just make sure you're nice and good with people. Nobody would go to a doctor who, they're not really part of any board, but yeah, we know them to be a good guy. That's a, a crazy way to measure, is the person professional? Are they ethical? Are they trained? Um, now, I do see change, I have to be honest, as somebody who works, um, you know, within one university where there's a tremendous influx of Hasidic students who are now training for social work, I'm hopeful, I am hopeful that the change will happen. I worry because very often the profession of therapy is overrun by rabbinic authority or leadership within the community, um, and that can be very dangerous. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not compatible. Like I said, I believe you need an interdisciplinary team, right? You need the rabbi, you need the social work, you need the mentor, uh, but everybody's got to know their place. And if the therapist just becomes another pawn for leadership, it's no longer a therapist. It's now a very dangerous person. And again, I think it's when things are planned out and advanced properly, when you're given the luxury of forethought. Um, you could plan much better than when you're really straggling to catch up behind. And that's really what we're seeing now. We're seeing a really hard catch-up game that is not working. Uh, but like I said, I'm hopeful because the people are good. I have met of the finest friends, family that I have come from the Orthodox world. Um, so I believe in the people. The leadership, not as much. I think right, Abby, on, that, on that optimistic note, um, <laughs> you know, it's a topic of such importance that we could probably go on all, all night or all day. Um, and, you know, as depends on where you are in the world. I think the fact that, you know, the Rabbanit, you and the Rav Yonatan, um, we've mentioned Rav Rosenzweig as well, who we've had the Chabura, are sort of bringing oh. these important topics. I, yeah, I recommend everyone to, to listen to that about mental health and halakha. Avi, do um, you know what the title of that class was? Um, I, I can make sure to, to get it through to you um, and I, we can, we'll send it on the discussion groups so that other people see it. Um, but I th- it's called Chab- Mental Health and Halakha um, at Chabura and it will come up on YouTube. But I think all these topics are, you know, Kolis Arvim Zelazeh and, and um, I think it's the conversations that we have to have. And um, sometimes you need to look back at, at these Teshuvot and, and to find sort of innovative solutions um but i want to thank you so much for, for this amazing series um really thank you. Th- thank you for having me and we're absolutely happy to have you again we're, we're looking forward to them um and of course we've got the the, the classes of Ravionatan with the hot kashrut strongly recommend everybody um the tools for basically that. he's gonna let you have eat everything and i'm gonna take away your appetite that's how our classes work so. <laughs> that's a great strategy <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Like I said, if anybody wants to stick around, please feel free. Abby, if you need to go, we can certainly wrap things up. It's the middle of the day for me.
Um, I, thank you all for coming. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day, and we'll, we'll be in touch for future classes. Awesome. Laila Tov, have a good night. Laila Tov, everyone. Thank you.